is salt really bad for high blood pressure? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by an expert, Dr. James D. Nicol Antonio, who wrote an entire book about this, The Salt Fix. And it's gonna answer not only that question, but many more and provide you with a wealth of information you probably weren't aware of about this issue of salt being healthy or not. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, you are actually a PharmD, and I'm wondering if you could share your personal history and what inspired and catalyzed your journey to write this book and help us understand better about the proper perspective of salt in our diet. Yeah, so really um, what, what sparked my interest in salt was actually being a community pharmacist. I was having patients coming up to me. And they were put on this low salt diet and they were saying they were having all these symptoms of like muscle fatigue and muscle spasms and cramps and heart palpitations. And they said, they, you know, their doctors, you know, ordered them to not add salt to their food because they had high blood pressure, but yet they were suffering all these new symptoms. And so really, you know, I kept seeing these patients over and over again, put on these low salt diets for high blood pressure and complaining of all these symptoms of salt deficiency. And so what I ended up doing is kind of pushing back and telling, you know, telling my patients, you know, you really need to go to your doctor's office, tell them these symptoms that you're having and, and, and even get your blood sodium levels drawn because you might be deficient in salt. And sure enough, these people were severely dehydrated. They had low sodium levels in the blood. And within a few days of just upping their salt intake, all of these symptoms went away. And so right there, I knew that this low salt advice, it just wasn't panning out in the real world. Excellent. And were you challenged by uh, some of the other practitioners that were you seem to appear to be uh, going against their recommendations? I mean, it's, it seems like that might be a, 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 a particularly troublesome scenario for, for many uh, clinicians. Yeah, it was until those lab results and the symptoms went away. So they couldn't really ignore their patients coming back to them and saying, oh, my gosh, all my symptoms. You know, I decided to just start adding a few, you know, salt for a couple of days and all of these symptoms went away. And, you know, I had a few doctors who actually drew blood and the, the sodium levels were so low. They actually ended up even cutting their, the, their patient's diuretics either in half or totally getting rid of their diuretics for high blood pressure and, and told their patients to start adding salt back to their foods. And so it took kind of being smacked in the face and, you know, for those doctors to kind of say, you know what, this maybe low salt device isn't working for you. So good. So that's what brought you to write this book. And in the book, you provide a historical perspective about the use of salt. And I wonder if you could comment on those now of the usages of salt in ancient times and even more recent times. Yeah, that's one of the more eye-opening parts of my book is that, I mean, salt use throughout history, we have used over and consumed over 10 times the amount of salt that we consume today because salt was our main food preservative. We didn't have refrigerators. So for literally the last 10,000 years, we mainly preserved our food in basically bucket loads of salt. And so, um, you know, basically in China, this is where it really began back eight to 10,000 years ago, they would drill into the ground for the salt brine and they would use that salt to preserve real foods. And we even know that, you know, the Japanese and South Korea, they lived the longest and yet they consume the highest amounts of salt. 
Um, so we know even from a population perspective, it never made any much sense to cut saw intake. Um, but even in the 1600s in Sweden, it was estimated that the average person was consuming 100 grams of salt per day. And we, we don't even consume 10 grams of salt per day. And so, you know, from when you look at it from that perspective, and we didn't have all the chronic disease that we have today, and yet we consumed up to 10 times the amount of salt that we do nowadays, it really doesn't make much sense that salt is contributing to this, you know, new um, rampant increase in hypertension that began really in the early 1900s. And if anything, uh, the parallel with hyper to the rise in hypertension and obesity and diabetes beginning in the early 1900s actually parallels a reduction in salt intake because you had the refrigerator um, actually becoming very prevalent in the 1930s and 40s. And so salt intake has actually gone down while all these chronic diseases have gone up. So can you uh, provide us with the translations of the amount of salt that one consumes as a uh, a supplement or an additive versus the amounts of sodium in a diet like and yeah. what the, what the what the current existing American Health Association recommendations are and how those compare to the actually the teaspoons or fractions of teaspoons that people use in their diet sure so basically one teaspoon of salt is 2300 milligrams of sodium mm -hmm. um, basically you take if you wanted to um, find out how many milligrams of sodium are in uh, grams of salt, you divide salt, so 10 grams of salt divided by two and a half to give you the amount of sodium. The average American is consuming about 3,400 milligrams of sodium. Um, so they're consuming between about eight and 10 grams of salt. And really throughout the world, almost every population is really consuming a very narrow range of salt. And that's because our bodies control its intake. And there's never been any evidence that an increase in salt intake has ever paralleled any rise in any chronic disease. So, and maybe you can address the question that we initially opened up with was the association of salt and high blood pressure, which I believe was primarily popularized from one major study, the DASH study, that lowered salt intake and got dramatic improvements. But not only did they lower salt, but they lowered processed foods and sugar intake. So perhaps you can talk about the way the... Uh, association between salt intake and high blood pressure was established. Yeah. So actually even going back further than that, there was um, uh, a man named Louis Dahl. He was basically the Ansel Keys of salt. He did the, virtually the same thing that Ansel Keys did in 1953, where he used uh, five populations to draw a linear line saying that hypertension prevalence rose as salt intake increased. And so we know Ansel Keys did six countries back in 1953 and showed this right curvy linear association with fat intake and death due to coronary heart disease. So really, I don't know what was in the water in the 1950s, but these doctors seem to just, you know, pick five or six populations that fit their hypothesis, plot it out and, you know, show their association, basically a finding they wanted to find. But Intersol is one of the main studies published in 1988 where um, there was 52 populations, and four of these populations um, that were included were basically these primitive cultures, right? And so they consumed virtually no salt, like the Yanomamo Indians um, and, and a few other type of um, unacculturated civilizations. Um, and really, when, when you removed those four tribal populations, you looked at the, just the 48 civilized countries, 
there was actually a reduction in blood pressure as salt intake increased. But that didn't get highlighted. What actually got highlighted was the reduction in blood pressure as salt intake was lower, but only if you included those four primitive cultures that also ate a ton of potassium, a ton of magnesium, they exercise more than us, they're lean, um, they don't drink alcohol, and they don't consume sugar. Um, but when you remove those cultures, we actually found the opposite. So the more salt we consume in, in inner salt, um, actually there was a reduction in blood pressure. And then back to the DASH sodium study you had mentioned, it's true that blood pressure did go down when, when you cut your salt intake. The problem is, is that the total cholesterol to HDL ratio, which is a much better predictor of heart disease than even LDL, was worsened on the low salt diet and triglycerides increased as well. Because when you cut this essential mineral, you actually become insulin resistant because that's the, one of the body's ways of preserving salt is by upping uh, insulin levels because insulin helps the kidneys retain more salt. And so they were looking at these minuscule um, reductions in blood pressure with lowering salt and actually not looking at all the harms and not publishing and really highlighting those harms. Yes, it's not uh, surprising. In fact, it's almost predictable that they would do this. Uh, clearly the best endpoint would be uh, some type of cardiovascular mortality, uh, but in fact, they measured the midpoints, which was a lower inner blood pressure and not looking at the whole picture. Uh, so uh, the other component though, is that uh, there is a pernicious villain here and it is white and it uh, looks like salt, but it's not salt at all. It's the other one, it's sugar, which is the real uh, evil thing that needs to be limited or avoided, uh, at least processed sugar. So perhaps you can touch on that. Yeah. So, I mean, if, I mean, there's definitely some food industry at play here, right? Because if the, if the sugar industry could blame the other white crystal salt, right, it got a free pass. So if salt was the cause of kidney disease, heart failure, high mm -hmm. blood pressure, then sugar wasn't. And really, so what ended up happening is there were definitely scientists that were getting paid by the sugar industry showing that sugar, um, you know, didn't cause all these things, um, high, high blood pressure and, and things like that. Um, but really, when you look at the data and you look at basically studies that didn't have any conflicts to the food industry. So there was one systematic review, systematic reviews published a few years ago, and it literally showed the opposite results. So the studies that didn't have any conflicts Basically, 80, over 80% of them show that sugar is associated with obesity and gaining weight. And of course, the 80% of the studies that had conflicts of interest to the sugar industry show the exact opposite, which literally goes to show you that absolutely conflicts to the sugar industry and the food industry can affect scientific results. And that's what was going on here. And so people were basically being told sugar was, you know, just energy. It wasn't harmful to your body. And yet salt was the addictive white substance. And really, you know, it was sugar all along. Yeah, sugar can definitely crash your metabolism, especially when it's refined and processed. So one of the uh, ways that uh, I believe, and we actually wrote a book on it called Fat for Fuel, that people can help improve their insulin resistance, which is seems to be at the metabolic core of most disease, is to go on a low-carb, high quality fat diet, uh, sometimes called ketosis um, uh, or targeted cyclical ketosis. But in the process, one of the side effects of that is something called the keto flu. And interestingly, you discuss this in your book. Uh, almost invariably, if you follow this program and you ne neglect or fail to 
understand what happens to your sodium levels, you will wake up with severe incapacitating muscle cramps, typically in your legs at night because of the sodium loss. So I wonder if you could comment on that because I think it's a really important fact for people to know, especially if they're uh, intrigued enough to adopt a ketogenic lifestyle. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that point because there is a really important topic and there's so many people out there trying to go on ketogenic diets or trying to lower their carbohydrate intake. And literally the one barrier stopping them from doing that is the, the dramatic amount of salt loss that occurs when you try and cut those carbohydrates. So what ends up happening is when you are consuming 400 grams of carbohydrates every day and then you decide to cut your carbohydrate intake to less than 100 or less than 50 grams of carbohydrates, your insulin levels dramatically go down, glucagon goes up, and then you start producing these negatively charged ketone bodies, all three of which deplete the body of salt. So these negatively charged ketone bodies are pulling positively charged sodium ions out in the urine, at least for the first week of when you cut your carbohydrate intake. And so most people are losing an additional one to two grams of sodium per day uh, when they cut their carbohydrate intake for, you know, about two weeks. But the other issue is, is that the, the loss of exogenous glucose is now reducing your absorption of sodium. So glucose helps us absorb sodium. So when you are no longer consuming uh, high amounts of glucose, you are also not absorbing as much sodium. So there's, there's a few things happening when we cut our carbohydrate intake, why people get these, like you said, these debilitating cramps, especially in the legs. And what's really interesting is that your salt status directly controls your magnesium and your calcium levels in your body. Because if you do not get enough salt, the body starts pulling sodium from the bone, but it strips it of magnesium and calcium as well to maintain normal sodium levels. And so Numerous metabolic studies have shown that when you go on a low salt diet, in order to maintain normal sodium levels in the blood, the body's pulling sodium from elsewhere, but also stripping magnesium and calcium. So the, one of the worst things people can do for their bone health is to go on these low sodium diets because your, your bones are going to be stripped of magnesium and calcium at the same time. That's a really, really important point. And, and probably for reasons that you may not appreciate at this point, but I'm going to expand on because <clears throat> I, I'm sure you understand that magnesium is probably one of the most important mineral deficiencies that, that we have as humans. Uh, I mean, in general, by, by sensitive assays, we, we're finding that 80% of people are deficient in magnesium. So if, you go, if you're going on a low salt diet, it's going to make it even worse. But magnesium is especially important because there's a, some really strong supporting evidence that it may mitigate some of the negative impacts that EMFs have on us through the voltage-gated calcium channels and them being a, a calcium channel blocker and appropriate contents. So this is a radically important uh, concept to understand when you go on a low-salt diet, you are lowering your magnesium and calcium levels. But you know, most of us, calcium is not an issue. It's the magnesium that's going to get us into trouble. So uh, big, big issue. Yeah, it's a huge issue. And what, you know, the body's smart. Um, when it doesn't get enough sodium, what ends up happening is the body will protect itself by decreasing the amount of sodium lost in sweat. But what ends up happening is it increases the amount of magnesium and calcium lost in sweat. So you are going to literally sweat out more magnesium and calcium if you're following a low salt diet. And then there's a third hit to magnesium when you cut your salt intake. And so aldosterone, 
is a sodium retaining hormone. But most people don't know that aldosterone also reduces magnesium. It kicks magnesium out in the urine. And so low mm -hmm. sodium diets are elevating aldosterone levels and reducing magnesium in the body by increasing its urinary excretion. Wow. So when you refer to low sodium diet, uh, can you be more specific? This is uh, the American Heart Association recommendation, the conventional medical models, and, and give us some specific numbers. Sure. So basically every guideline, when I refer to a low sodium diet, that is basically one teaspoon of salt or 2,300 milligrams of sodium or less. The American Heart Association actually goes even further. Um, and I challenged one of their, uh, their recommendations by, um, I published a paper, a paper in the American Journal of Hypertension kind of saying um, the problems with their advice of extremely low salt intake. So we're talking about less than 1500 milligrams, which is basically less than two thirds of a teaspoon of salt. And you know, one of the ways you can easily challenge these recommendations is that 90% of Americans are consuming caffeine in some form or another. And if we consume just four cups of coffee, it's coffee is much more than just a diuretic, is a natriuretic. We lose a tremendous amount of salt in the urine when we consume caffeine. And so just four cups of coffee can cause us to lose over a full teaspoon of salt in the urine in just four hours. And yet we're being told by all these guidelines to consume less than that. So it makes no sense. And exercise is a huge salt waster as well, as you know. Um, you know, when we sweat, the average amount, amount of salt that we lose per hour of exercise is actually half a teaspoon of salt per hour. Um, and so we're supposed to be exercising to be healthy. We're supposed to be going out in the sun and getting vitamin D and sweating. And we're supposed to be eating real foods and salt helps us eat real foods. So really, you know, this low salt advice is going against the two things that people need to be doing to improve their health. That's eating healthy foods and exercising more. And salt allows us to do both. Yes, indeed. So let's get into some practical recommendations. Um, I uh, initially was using a very precise uh, nutrient tracker analysis program called Chronometer uh, and accurately weighed and measured my foods and entered it into this nutrient tracker and could tell within literally a few milligrams how much sodium I was getting for the most part. And when I was eating real food, virtually no processed foods, except for maybe some canned sardines, my sodium levels were like in the dirt. They were less than a gram. This is assuming I was not applying any added salt. So uh, considering that, I mean, I definitely qualified for the American Heart Association's qualifications for low salt diet. But you know, we talked about earlier about the dangers of doing that and getting leg cramps. So uh, I'm wondering if you can comment on how much would be healthy and the general advice to give with respect to how much salt should you use? I mean, do you, do you uh, I think it's between eight and 10 grams is what your recommendation was, but I mean, what does that translate out to with respect to seasoning your food and, and the process to go about doing it and addr also addressing any concerns about oversalting? Okay, uh, great questions. I think what you said right at first is probably the most important thing. When you start eating a real food diet, your sodium levels now, your sodium intake is going to dramatically go down. And so the reason is, is we're not consuming the whole animal anymore. We used to get a ton of salt from, from blood, interstitial fluid, lymphatic fluid, skin, bone marrow. Um, and now we're not getting that. And so we're just getting, let's say, a dry piece of muscle meat that doesn't have any you know, salty blood around it. And so well, unless you're eating processed foods, which is a whole other issue, because then they're going to salt it like crazy. 
But and so that's another. Have, that's the follow-up question because you know is that salt better than nothing or is it deleterious because it's a processed right. salt. Yeah, and and I definitely think that processed salt is not the salt that we should be aiming to consume. But really, the process the problem with processed foods is is really everything but the salt, right? It's it's the refined carbs, it's the sugar, it's the uh, vegetable oils and artificial sweetener. So don't blame uh, salt for what the sugar did is kind of what I always go back to when, when referring to processed foods. And and then you made a good point about, well, what should how much should people be consuming per day? And we all have different physiologies. And luckily, we have this built-in safety mechanism. We have the salt thermostat that controls how much salt we should be eating. And basically, it's kind of listening to your own salt cravings because some people exercise more and lose a lot of salt and drink caffeine, and some people cut carbs more than others. So everybody's different. And luckily, if we actually don't follow these guidelines and listen to our own bodies, in general, that will drive us to consume the optimal amount of salt. And like you said, that kind of sits around eight to 10 grams of salt or about three to 4,000 milligrams of sodium per day. Okay, so the general advice is to salt your food to taste? Correct. And then you had a third question, and that was, can we get too much salt? Mm -hmm. And as we briefly discussed for the last 10,000 years, we've consumed at least two to three times, but up to 10 times the amount of salt that we versus what we consume today. And we didn't have the chronic diseases that we had today. And the reason is, is because the kidneys can flush out any salt they don't need. If you have healthy kidneys, you're a normal person. You can consume at least 86 grams of salt. Certain studies have shown it just gets flushed right out in the urine. Um, the problem is not getting enough. We can't manufacture an essential mineral. And so that's why all the studies show the highest risk of cardiovascular events and early mortality at a low salt intake, even versus a high salt intake. Even if you look at really high amounts of salt, I'm talking seven, 8,000 milligrams of sodium per day. The, the rise in cardiovascular mortality is maybe only 20% versus three to 4,000 milligrams. But if you go low salt, the, cardi the uh, coronary heart disease mortality can be twofold. So even at the higher end, and we know this through Japan and South Korea, um, that these people consume four or 5,000 milligrams of sodium and actually live the longest and have the lowest risk of coronary heart disease mortality. Yes, in ancient times, in fact, salt was considered a very valuable commodity, so much so that I believe the etymology may be coming from Latin of the word salary is, comes from salt. Uh, I believe it does. And uh, because it was an essential commodity that people needed, it, if they didn't get it, they were going to be in serious problems. So, you know, it's, it's this has been treasured for since ancient times, but uh, has been really vilified within the last century or so. Yeah. And you also brought up a good point, too, uh, just a few minutes ago. What type of salt should people be consuming? Yeah, that was the next question, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, my recommendation in the book is this Redmond real salt, and it's actually from an ancient ocean. And so if you're getting sea salts from modern day oceans, you can get modern day pollution, including mm -hmm. microplastics, um, nanoplastics, and even trace um, traces of heavy metals. And so when you get and you source your salt from an ancient ocean, you, you don't have to worry about that. But the other great thing about Redmond is that it has good amounts of calcium and iodine. And so like regular sea salt has basically no iodine in it. 
Um, and, and a lot of people are confused and actually think sea salt has the highest amount of iodine because everybody knows seafood is high in iodine. But for some reason, salt from modern day oceans, that sea salt does not have iodine in it. Very good points, and I'm glad you incorporated the recent findings. If my understanding, which was published in the last week or two, the the microplastics in the in the sea salt, uh, big issue. I was going to bring it up, but you, I'm glad you did. So, uh, you, conventional sea salts you really want to avoid. Not much better than than processed regular salt. So I'm wondering if you could comment or compare the Redmond sea salt versus one that we typically recommend is the Himalayan salt, which is also uh, from an ancient ocean up in the uh, Himalayas. Yeah, so if you look at um, the actual amounts of iodine and Himalayan salt, it can vary anywhere from less than 100 micrograms per 10 grams of salt to up to 1,000 micrograms. Uh, Redmond seems to come in at about 170 micrograms of iodine per 10 grams of salt, which is just a little bit over what most people consume in a day. And so you can really get um, basically the RDA for iodine um, by consuming those type of salts. That's what's good about Himalayan and, and Redmond is they do contain good amounts of iodine. Um, what Redmond contains um, more of than Himalayan salt is calcium. So you, you get about 40 milligrams of calcium um, and about eight milligrams of magnesium. Himalayan salt has virtually no calcium and only about one milligram of magnesium. Um, and then also Himalayan salt actually gives you some radioactive elements in very small amounts, but like um, uh, like plutonium and polonium and rubidium and all these other things that um, Redmond doesn't have. Um, and it's much cheaper. And so that's why I kind of prefer Redmond over Himalayan salt. Okay, well, thanks for those. And I'm not sure that the calcium magnesium are major issues because, you know, milligram of magnesium is not going to put a dent in the bucket. But, uh, you know, with respect to the radioactive elements, as long as they're in small amounts, and I'm sure you've heard of this, is there's this process called hormesis, where actually very tiny amounts of a dangerous substance, and at least dangerous in larger amounts, can actually be very beneficial because it activates these uh, anti like antioxidants pathways like NRF2 to upregulate your internal antioxidants. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so we talked about how the other white crystal is the issue, uh, not salt is contributing to heart disease, which is the core of the problem. Not not really changing your blood pressure, but actually increasing the risk of the consequences of high blood pressure, which is heart disease typically. Could be card any other cardiovascular diseases like stroke. But I'm wondering if you could talk about how low sodium actually contributes to insulin resistance, which you mentioned, and increasing in sugar cravings. Yeah, it's a great point. So, um, so there's there's a few things going on when we cut our salt intake, and you know one of the body's defense mechanisms of allowing the kidneys to retain more salt is by elevating insulin levels. And so when we go on these low salt diets, the body becomes insulin resistant as a defense mechanism. And literally, I've seen studies where um, going on low salt diets are actually just as harmful as adding high amounts of sugar in regards to the spikes in um, glucose levels that you can see after an oral glucose tolerance test. I mean, you can get 60, 70%, even 100% increase in the AUC of an oral glucose tolerance test by cutting your salt intake. And so this is a key mineral that we need to make sure we're getting enough of. Otherwise, that could be contributing to insulin resistance and an increase in fat storage. And the other uh, aspect of not getting enough salt 
is the body is very smart and the, and, and somehow animals know to go to a salt lake if they don't have enough salt. How do they know to do that? And, and they know to do that by an upregulation in our reward center in the brain when we don't get enough salt. That actually protects us as humans, as animals. Um, we get these cravings for salt and it's more rewarding once we consume it in the diet. And the problem is the sugar is now more rewarding when we're not getting enough salt. And so the, the sensitization of our reward system and people who are suffering out there from sugar cravings and dependency can literally be driven by not getting enough of the other white crystal salt. Well, thanks for explaining that in more detail. So uh, another question I have that uh, I think you addressed in the book is, is regarding uh, some subpopulations. You had mentioned that for most people, the extra salt isn't the issue, but are there any subpopulations maybe with endocrine disorders or people who are salt sensitive, so to speak, who really do need to pay attention to this and some of the advice that we're discussing may not be appropriate for them? Yeah, so when we're referring to... Um, should, should certain subpopulations follow this low salt advice, less than 2,300 milligrams? The reason why I think virtually no one should is because we're supposed to be exercising every day and we can lose a, a half a teaspoon to a full teaspoon of salt per hour of exercise. So even if people are sensitive, they're still going to be losing a half to a full teaspoon of salt per hour of exercise. Most people are still consuming caffeine and becoming and being flushed out of salt. And so, you know, anyone who's consciously restricting their salt intake, I don't think there's any subpopulation that should go against what their own cravings are telling them. But as you pointed out, there are certain people that are more salt sensitive. And I do cover those aspects in the book. And they're the three main subpopulations that seem to be salt sensitive, people with high aldosterone levels. And generally, there's either a benign tumor where you're secreting more aldosterone, um, and, or you can just give someone a medication like spironolactone rather than, you know, uh, cutting an essential mineral out of the diet. Um, Cushing syndrome, where there's elevations in cortisol, which of course can be treated from uh, with medications. And, and then there's a very rare disease called Little syndrome. It's about one in a million people where they retain too much salt. But we can give those patients a medication called amiloride. And, and don't take away that white substance. It's allowing people to eat healthy, bitter foods. And, and really, that's why I really believe very few people should be consciously restricting their salt intake. Well, good, good points for sure. So and I, I think I want to uh, mention another issue that uh, I think you typically don't address in your, most of the audiences you, that you're discussing this with, but the, those who are passionate about health will frequently, like myself, use far infrared saunas as a form of detox on a regular basis. And you know, with person, personal experience, I typically run my crank up to mine between 150 and 170, and I'm in there for a half hour, and I've been doing long distance endurance running for, I did it for over 40 years, and I know how much I sweat during that, even in a hot temperature versus the sauna, and the sauna is at least two to three times as much sweat coming out as you do when you exercise. So that's another one that you really want to add to your regimen uh, of being aware of your sodium loss if in fact you're engaging in that healthy practice yeah no that's a great point yeah so something to consider all right so can can you discuss some of the disease uh, diseases that actually contribute to sodium loss 
Yeah, so what's interesting, back in the 1970s, when we originally told to cut salt intake, we didn't have all these disease states and medications that deplete our body of salt. And because salt is an extracellular mineral, we can be flushed out of that mineral very easily, much more than even an intracellular mineral. And so, you know, it comes down to, are you losing salt? Um, And the disease states that can cause us to not absorb salt, for one, is inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. These people do not absorb salt well. And and also, patients with celiac disease and um, IBS they also are, are not absorbing salt very well. And then, of course, people who have bariatric uh, surgeries, they, they can't absorb salt well. And then there's people who've had their intestine and colon removed, right? colon cancer and other things that don't absorb salt well because we absorb salt in both the intestine, uh, small intestine and the colon. Um, so, so those are definitely some populations that need to be wary of. They're not absorbing salt very well. Um, there's other people with adrenal insufficiency as well. There was a, a, a child um, back, it was uh, published in JAMA in the 1940s. And this child was consuming loads of salt to the point where their parents actually hospitalized this child. And um, they strapped the child down um, because he was raiding the hospital cabinets of salt. He ended up dying a few days later from a salt loss, from uh, adrenal insufficiency. They didn't realize it. And so that's just a good example of we should really be listening to our salt uh, uh, cravings. Um, But yeah, there's people with adrenal insufficiency that don't absorb salt well. And then the other uh, disease states that cause salt loss are hypothyroid. Our thyroid hormones, beyond just controlling our metabolism, actually allows the kidneys to reabsorb salt. And so there's 22 million Americans who have, you know, some type of thyroid dysfunction, mainly being hypothyroid. And so those people need more salt. There's 20 million Americans with undiagnosed sleep apnea who are losing twice the amount of salt at night. um, And that's why they're up at night peeing all the time. Um, and, and there's other disease states as well that affect the kidneys, um, like polycystic kidney disease and, um, glomerulonephritis and, um, interstitial damage to uh, the tubules that causes salt loss, all these other disease states that, um, people need to be on the lookout for. Now, how does sleep apnea induce sodium loss? Is it through, uh, exhalation or they lose it basically similar to sweating where they're losing it and they're, they're volatilizing it through their mouth? What ends up happening is the um, the lack of breathing increases and causes blood to go into um, the thorax and it increases central blood pressure. And so it tricks the body into thinking it's overloaded in salt. And so um, the, the, the mechanism that the body does to fight that is to lose about 3,000 milligrams of sodium at night um, in undiagnosed sleep apnea. So it has, it has to do with not breathing at night and this increase in central blood pressure that occurs because of it. Interesting. I would have never guessed that was the mechanism. Thank you for explaining that. And I also wanted to make a comment on the bariatric surgery, which I didn't realize was associated with sodium loss. But I wanted to comment that it it is, in fact, indeed, a very highly effective way to combat morbid obesity. That doesn't mean I recommend it, but it works. And it works in a way similar that that, uh, fasting does, which doesn't cost any money. Essentially, it's free and gets the same results, except it's better because when you're fasting, many people may not realize this, but the body upregulates this process called autophagy, which is eating yourself at a, at a cellular level. And the people who 
lose weight fasting as opposed to very low calorie diets actually don't get that massive skin folds that have to be surgically excised after they lose their 100, 200, 300 pounds because the body takes care of it and just eats it, eats it. So, and then you don't have to worry about the sodium loss either. So another other thing. So bariatric surgery, if you know anyone who's considering it, please have them reconsider fasting. And my favorite resource for that is another guest I interviewed is Dr. Jason Fung, F-U-N-G, who wrote the book, The Complete Guide to Fasting, which is just a, one of the most powerful metabolic interventions I know. So I'm sorry to go off on a tangent, but I thought it was an important one, not really related to the weight loss, other than if you do fast, you're going to make sure you have to get enough salt because you do not want to wake up with debilitating leg cramps at night. No, yeah, <laughs> really that's a good important. point. But yeah, in we... talking, going back to the inputting that, and, and let's take this extreme, someone who's fasting, where the only food you have is water. I'm talking about a water fast, not a dry fast, a water fast. So in that case, how do you recommend doing doing that? Because I actually had read your book and then after that had started a four-day water fast and I knew that the, it was really important to get my sodium in. So, But if you're not eating food, it doesn't taste very good in the water. So what I wound up doing, just pour it in my palm and just licking my palm as a way to increase my salt. And I'm wondering if there's an easier way to do that. Yeah, no, you can do it that way. Um, that's certainly not a bad way. And I agree with you. When you try to add salt to liquid, um, like water, it can sometimes oh, taste. It's not good. Yeah. Not a good thing. Do not do, not it's do that. Not. Um, what I do is I take, um, let's say I'm going to work out for an hour before exercise. I always dose myself with salt. Tre tremendous benefits when you do that. Um, oh, wait, wait, wait. Stop there. Stop there. Expand on that. Just don't just sure. lie by that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I call salt the sixth factor in fitness. Um, and Ansel Keys actually discovered some of the, the benefits of salt in exercise. You know, you know, we all, you know, don't necessarily like some of uh, his publications in the past. He had a great one in the 1940s. And he literally showed that when when you exercise or you work out in the heat, um, there is a tenfold increase in heat stroke. Um, if you will follow a low salt diet, so less than a teaspoon of salt versus following a normal or high salt diet. Um, and so the benefits of salt are everyone's trying to look for a way to increase blood circulation and nothing's going to beat salt. So when you dose yourself with salt, what I do is I do about a half a teaspoon of Redmond real salt. I use about uh, just enough lemon juice to cover the salt. And then I'll use about just two ounces of water and take it like, it takes like a lemon shot when you do that, do it that mm -hmm. way. And um, you can even create like a keto aid where you fill up the salt with um, lemon juice and lime juice and water. And you're creating like this lemon lime Gatorade without the sugar. And that's how some people get their, their dose of salt before they exercise. And the benefits, you're, in, you're, you're acutely increasing blood volume you're increasing your blood circulation. You're reducing the heart rate, which is important in order to run longer, uh, faster, harder. And also salt is very, it's a vasodilator. It's one of our best vasodilators. And so that allows heat to escape the body. And literally salt keys showed in the 1940s that more salt actually decreased core body temperature um, because uh, of this dissipation of heat and the vasodilation that occurs. And so there, and, and what's interesting is overtraining syndrome is literally salt deficiency in the tissues. When you're constantly wow. exercising, sweating, your, your, your muscles are just losing salt. And that's why you get the muscle spasms and twitches. And um, if you just add salt back to the diet, you can completely eliminate overtraining syndrome. That is beyond profound. Thank you for sharing that. That is powerful information. I, I've been a lifelong advocate of exercise and 
didn't really fully appreciate the importance of sodium before. So just to make sure that I understand what your recommendation is for this lemon shot, uh, it's two ounces of water, a half a teaspoon of Redmond salt or Himalayan, and uh, how much lemon or lime were you putting in? Yeah, just enough lemon juice to cover the salt, and then you oh, add about two ounces. Okay, so just enough for taste. Okay, yeah. well that makes that makes perfect sense. Now I'm assuming this recommendation is for aerobic exercise where you're sweating. Would it be similar for strength training where you're not sweating as much? Yeah, similar for strength training, and um, there's several reasons why. But the acute load of salt is going to up blood volume and also increase blood circulation. So the the muscle pump and the improvement in blood flow to muscles, which is so important for uh, heavy weightlifters, and it also completely eliminates um, uh, that that headache that a lot of weightlifters get. Um, and so because of the increase in blood circulation, so yeah, so you're, that's a great point. That dosing is for both not just aerobic exercise where you're losing a lot of it in sweat, but also to improve um, muscle pump function and reducing that uh, that weightlifting headache. And what about timing? Do you do this like right before, a half hour before, an hour? What What's the best recommendation for that? Yeah, that's a huge point. So preloading with salt seems to work much better than trying to catch up or even doing it um, right at uh, the beginning. So what I do is probably about 20 minutes before my workout, I will kind of preload with that half a teaspoon of Redmond Real Salt. Wow, that that is profound. I'm actually going to integrate that into my workout schedule now. And Interestingly, there is a technology, you may or may not have heard of it, it's called VASPER, V-A-S-P-E-R, like vascular performance. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I have. Okay, good. So then you're familiar with it. And it's for those most everyone who who's listening to this hasn't or watching it. Uh, but it's a very expensive machine, about fifty or $60,000. And it's designed for elite athletes. And they essentially have, uh, uses blood flow restriction training where they have these compression cuffs on your arms and your legs. And you're also sitting on this pad. And in the compression cuffs are, are, is a cooling fluid, usually typically almost cold as ice water. And essentially it decreases your core body temperature, allowing you to perform at a more intense regimen and still and not causing metabolic uh, this performance, but it's and the reason I'm mentioning this is the, the one of the, the clear strengths of that and the, and the hormonal benefits it has is that it keeps your core body temperature lower. But it sounds like you could do something similar, maybe not quite as extreme, but something similar with the salt addition. Yeah, you're 100% right. Yeah, so man, that's a that's a winner because most people watching this don't have fifty thousand dollars to spend for a Vasper. So, <laughs> so that's great. So now, uh, so hopefully by this time, people are. Uh, enlightened and uh, starting to dissipate some of the fear that's been inculcated from the media and the public health officials over the last five decades. Oh, interestingly, as an aside, Ansel Keys was also funded by the sugar industry, and you probably knew that, uh, but that was in the 50s. So I'd like to go now. So if, you, if your fear of salt is starting to diminish, I want to focus on the positive which is highlighting some of the benefits or the utility that sodium and chloride has in the body. So maybe you can enlighten us in that area. Yeah. So, so most people kind of understand inherently what sodium does, right? It, it gives us a blood pressure, which we need. It increases blood circulation. So what, what some of the functions though of salt that a lot of people don't know is that sodium actually allows and helps us absorb vitamin C. 
It's extremely important. And it actually drives vitamin C into the brain and the bone. And so this is why low sodium diets and low sodium in the blood is associated with brittle bones, falls, fractures. So if you want good vitamin C in the bone, which is important for collagen and bone strength, you need to have adequate amounts of sodium to bring in vitamin C. There's that, that, there's that transporter where they, they re, are required for each other to come into the brain and the bone. But a lot of people don't realize the benefits of the other essential mineral in salt, which is chloride. So chloride literally makes up hydrochloric acid. That's how we break down our food, absorb nutrients, and fight off bacterial infections. And literally, low salt diets have been shown to increase the pH in the stomach. And so you're not, you know, there's a lot of people suffering with GERD and acid reflux potentially because they're not even consuming enough salt to have the hydrochloric acid in the first place to break down the foods and which is why it's coming up into the esophagus. Yes, indeed. So all again, highlighting the importance of making sure you're getting enough salt. You know, it, it just, it, the longer I study medicine, the more I'm impressed with how simple things are. And this salt is one classic example. I mean, you just need to salt your food. It couldn't be much more simple than that, is to salt your food liberally until you feel satiated. Uh, it's almost as simple as the other one, which is, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for that recommendation on exercise and preloading with the salt. I'm definitely going to use that. And it, it amazes me. Oh, another perhaps even superior aid to improving athletic performance. And it's is just making sure you're sleeping enough and getting high quality sleep. How much more simple does it get than sleep? So, you know, that's another radically overlooked uh, aspect of how to optimize your health is not is not sleeping. I just finished this book, uh, How Do We Sleep? Uh, that was just, I, it's just amazing what the lack of sleep does. But it's, it's, it's you know, these simple strategies like sleep and salt uh, have, can have profound benefits on your health. And uh, I really uh, deeply appreciate your taking the time to put together this book that really crashes some of the, the myths that were so much, so many of us are under with respect to understanding the importance of not avoiding salt. I think, appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. So you've done a good job. And the name of your book again is The Salt Fix, right? Yeah, The Salt Fix. Yeah. Simple simple title. It's on uh, pretty much get, can be obtained anywhere. Any other resources you have or follow-up recommendations? Yeah. So people can get the book at uh, thesaltfix.com or on Amazon, and it's in uh, Barnes & Noble nationwide. Perfect. All right. You got any big plans coming up after this book or... Any new new topics you're going to tackle? Uh, n nothing as of right now, but, you know, don't count me out yet. Well, All right. Well, you still got a lot of time to stay in the game and enlighten us with the, in other areas. So we appreciate you taking the time to do this. It really is an important topic and piece of information that you're providing to help us take control of our health.